and verse number 16. I repeat, I hope you'll be back with us for the evening service. And Brother Mike Campbell will be sharing with you. I hope you'll bring your Bible and come to be with us at 6 o'clock this evening. I hope you'll be faithful to the services. Romans 8 and verse 16, the message title is, Are You in God's Will? And what we mean by that is, Are You an Heir of His Estate? In Romans chapter 8, verse 16, Paul writes, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So reads verses 16 through 18. Someone rightly said, quote, there are many high-sounding titles or names among men which are no otherwise profitable to the possessor of them than as they please their fancy and gratify their pride. In uh, the quote, and I agree with it. You know, there's some people who just have titles and they don't really mean a thing except they, uh, they um, please the fancy of the person who has them or in some way they gratify the pride of the person who got the title. Over the years, we have done amazing jobs in this country. We have changed some of the most lowly title or jobs in the world to some of the highest sounding titles you've ever heard in your life. You know, uh, I was talking to a garbage collector one time and he said he's not a garbage collector. He gave me, he was called a sanitation director, inspector of, 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 of street improvements. And the fact of the matter is, that's high sounding, but all it is, he picks up the garbage bags and puts them in the back of a garbage truck. Now, you can change the title all you want to, but it doesn't change the reality of what the task is. What's interesting, though, in the scriptures, in fact, in this chapter 8 of Romans, God gives us some titles. And the thing about God giving a title is that it has real basis, it has point, it has purpose. And when you read these titles that he has given his children, people who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, you come to understand something of what you have because of the title he gave you because the title has some significance in it let me show you two or three of them for instance look at romans 8 16 we uh, read that in the text today but we talked about it last week or two in romans 8 16 it says the spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are and notice he calls us the children of god the greek word for children is technon and that uh, ideal is that one born. That's what the ideal is. So these are, are, are young ones born into God's family. Then notice in verse number 14, in Romans 8 and verse 14, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. That's a huios is the word for sons there. And it doesn't mean technon. It's not children. It's not babies. It's not those born. Rather, the ideal of huios is the word that relates to our adoption. It takes on the ideal of someone who's been appointed to a position. And so it's not, uh, it's not just born ones as with children in verse 16. That's talking about our new birth into the family of God. Sons of God as identifying us as those who are in line for adoption. And then he uses another word in verse 17. In verse 17, he says, if we're children, then heirs. And then he says, heirs of God. The ideal of the heirs of God, some legal documents call them comer-afters. Uh, you'll, you'll read into a document, it'll say, to the comer-afters. And what he's talking about is a comer after is an heir, someone who's going to come along later. Uh, and consequently, that's what this one is. Romans 8, 17, we are comer afters. We are the heirs of God. And my, you ought to think for a while about that. And that's a tremendous thought, the fact that you're an heir to God Almighty and uh, been written into his will. 
as it were, and at the same time, it means that in a legal sense, even in our society, you have a stake in him. You have a stake in God as a legal heir. That's an interesting thing to me. Several years ago here at the New Life Baptist Church, I went to the mailbox, picked up a letter, and in the letter, or in the mail, I noticed there was a letter from a lawyer. And in that uh, letter, it was addressed to Pastor Rick Henry, New Life Baptist Church. I opened it, and inside was a legal notification that we were named as a church in a, in a, in a state. And that we were considered uh, in line for reading of the will, and we were told where it would be, when, and what time, and so forth. If we wished to come, if we didn't, then they would take care of it for us and give whatever the, the outcome was to be. Well, several things happened. Well, one of them was uh, there was nothing in the will, meaning that by the time they paid the debts and by the time they paid all the demands of the family and then they paid all the legal fees, they were then notified there was nothing left in the will. Well, that's not an uncommon thing. That, that, that happens periodically. And it is one thing for sure that you don't need to think in those kind of terms when you read verse number uh, 16 or 17 in the case of Romans 8. You know, when it says in verse 17, if you're children of God, then you're heirs, and you're heirs of God. You don't need to think in terms of what we know about wills and people today. I, I picked up a, uh, cut this out of the paper a few days ago, and I was asking uh, um, Georgina about this thing, and this is this was in the paper. You see it under the police reports all the time, you know, uh, or excuse me, in the court reports all the time. And, and this one is about this company, GMAC Mortgage Company, uh, is uh, suing unknown heirs and it gives the name of the guy they're suing and then it lists all these household finance corporation key bank usa bank of new york huntington national bank associate and associate home equity chase manhattan bank bank one bankers trust health and hospital unknown occupant whoever that is chase manhattan mortgage and uh, Conte Mortgage Company, Citizens Bank of Central Indiana, Associates Finance, Mooresville Savings Bank, Alliance Mortgage Company, First Indiana Bank, Provident Bank, Market Street Mortgage Company, EMC Mortgage Corporation, and Chase Bank of Texas. Now, I'll tell you one thing for sure. I wouldn't want to be the heir in this organization. See what I'm saying? If these folks are going to have to come up with the money to pay these people off, then obviously being an heir in this organization is not a good thing. Well, I got good news for you. From verse number 17, if you're an heir of God, there are two things you ought to write in your Bible. The first one is this. God owes nobody. God owes nobody. Nobody. Secondly, God owns everything. He owes nobody, and he owns everything. Everything in your account you call yours is his. And he can get it anytime he wants it. He has ways and means. He, he just he takes what he wishes and wills, and, and whatever honors him, he'll do. Even whether we're not happy with it or not, doesn't matter. If it glorifies God, if it's his decree, he'll do what he will do. So the point is, he owes nobody. He owns everything. And so when it comes to verse number 17 of Romans 8, and it says that we're heirs of God, uh, you ought to be a little bit brighter in context of who you are, because the fact is that you're in line for some good things. I love to read about wheels, and I had a a magazine a long time ago that had details about wills and here's some clippings that I copied out of it uh, here's a, a lady her name is Mrs. Jones she's 81 years of age she died without any survivors and that is without any human survivors she left three dogs to mourn her passing Bozo, Dolly and Skippy 
She specified that her $72,800 should go to the care and the maintenance of the dogs. When the dogs are dead, what is left would be given to the Walnut Street Baptist Church of Louisville, Kentucky. I love that. Then here's one that says, uh, a Finnish infidel died and he left his farm. We willed it to the devil. The courts, after deliberating the request in the will on such a ridiculous idea, uh, set to motion the fact that they were challenged that they could not do otherwise. Therefore, these folks set out to accommodate the guy's will. The best way to carry out the wishes of the infidel they perceived was to permit the farmland to grow up in weeds and briars, to allow the house, the barn, to remain unpainted and unmaintained and to rot down and to permit the soil to erode and wash away. The court said, quote, and this was written into the legal document, the best way to let Satan have it is to do nothing with it. Good point. Very good point. Here's another one. This is uh, about Billy the Kid, you know, the, the gunslinger says, when uh, celebrated Billy the Kid failed to return from a prospecting trip near Globe, Arizona in 1949, his handwritten will was found, and that didn't happen until 1964, and it produced one of the most colorful and perhaps bizarre cases in the history of the United States civil law. The will stipulated a fortune of nearly $300,000 to anyone who could prove the existence of the human soul. Hundreds of claimants, apparently, appeared to take care of the, this idea of trying to prove it. The, but the judge, the Arizona judge, finally awarded it to the American Society for uh, Physical Research in New York City. Uh, they may have been a front for the terrorist organization, for all we know, but the fact is, uh, that's what they were. They were called the Society of Phys Physical Research in New York City. Earlier, he had designated the funds to be to the Barrow Neurological Institute of Phoenix, a branch of the Roman Catholic Hospital there. But the state Supreme Court overruled his action, saying that the Institute did not qualify under the Will's decree concerning the proving of a soul. Here's another one. This one is Patrick Henry's. Patrick Henry, his name is known, of course, in every schoolboy's life by virtue of the phrase, give me liberty or give me death. He was an orator, top rank, also wise and fearless statesman. He had an active and important role in forming the government of the United States and particularly some of the provisions of our Constitution. He said in his will, I have now disposed of all my property to my family. There is one thing more I wish I could give them, and that is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If they had that and uh, I had not given them one shilling, they would have been rich. If they have not that and I had given them all the world, they would be poor indeed. Same is said about the same of William Shakespeare. His will write, uh, reads, I, William Shakespeare, of Stratford-upon-Avon, in the country of Warwick, gentlemen in perfect health and memory, God be praised, do make and ordain this my last will and testament in a manner and form following that it is to say, first, I commend my soul into the hands of God my Creator, hoping and assuredly believing through the only merits of the Lord Jesus Christ, my Savior, to be made partaker of life everlasting, and my body to the earth whereof and from whence it was made. William Shakespeare. Interesting things about wills. In our text today, though, there is this which focuses on those who know Christ as Savior and the will of God concerning you. Let me call your attention to it, if we could, to the text. First off, in verse 17, he starts out with the words, If children... I would remind you again that the word used here can be since or because. It is not if, as if in doubt. To this point, Paul has used the same phrase over and again, if, if, and if. For instance, if you look down in the text in verse number 9, 
His statement was, since, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, you are the children of God. He did almost the same thing in verse 14 when he says, Since you are led by the Spirit that dwells in you, you are a child of God. Then verse 16, Since the Spirit of God bears witness with your spirit, you are a child of God. And since all of that is true, you are a child of God, an heir, an heir of God. And what's interesting to me about this is what comes with being an heir of God. I read just this week in Hebrews chapter 1, in verse 14 it says, Are they not all ministering spirits? sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. What that says, if you're an heir of God and you have uh, been made an heir of salvation because of that faith in Christ and an heirship of God, it also means that Hebrews 1.14 says, talking about angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? So if you're an heir of salvation, the Bible teaches in Hebrews 1.14 that angels actually come to minister for you. It doesn't just say to you. The text is for you, ministering for you, doing things for you that probably you're not even aware of. So the context would say to me that what we're saying here is that they don't just come to you to help you and work things out to get you in position where you can hear the gospel and be saved, which I'm confident has some of that. But it's more than that. It's not just the new birth. I believe they have to do with sanctification, justification, and eventually glorification. I believe the angels assist in that in ways you and I are probably not even aware of. Because Hebrews 1.14, Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Those people who come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ have something going for them that most people around them are not even aware they have going for them. We have ministering spirits, which we believe the Bible teaches are angels. In, in that phrase, in Romans 8 and verse 17, if children, and of course that's the, that's the line or the foundation on which this rests, since you're children, children of God, and that's children taken out of verse 16, children of God, verse 17, and if you're children of God, then you're heirs, heirs of God. I say to you, there's two ways you can take this, in fact, or you can take it in a combination of two ways. But either way, good for you, but uh, it could be, uh, you know, depending on how you interpret it. But first off, it can be just simply the fact that as a child of God, you're in an heir, an heir of his estate. So when you get home to heaven, you get all the benefits of being an heir of God. You know, and that ideal of Jesus Christ, of course, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 says that Jesus Christ is heir of all things. And then verse number 17 of Romans says we're joint heirs with him. And in the case with being a joint heir is different than just being an heir. Uh, joint heir, and let's say that the New Life Baptist Church were to, to will out all of its properties. And let's say that you're a joint heir in receiving the properties, okay? It would mean this. It doesn't mean that we take all the estate and we divide it equally. It technically means that this building is your building. You're a joint heir of this. This is your house. That's what it means. You see, it's taking the idea that it's not after it's split up and you get equal. Uh, in fact, uh, in the scriptures, the fact of the matter is the business of giving out a, a will or selling a will in an estate in the scriptures was not equal. It was never equal. The firstborn always got the estate. And then it worked down from that. So scripturally, it was always the firstborn gets the estate and the firstborn can deal with it the way he wants to. The fact of the matter is, uh, I certainly understand some people's reasoning about not giving their estate equally to their children. I mean, there's some, there's some kids out there that if you gave them uh, $10,000 out of the state, they'd go out and get drugs and get drunk and, and probably kill themselves. So you don't want to do that. I understand not giving equally the estate. I understand that. 
point made about in the Scriptures, I believe the reason that it sets forth that we're joint heirs with Jesus Christ is to simply state the fact that everything He has, we have. That's how He's saying it. Everything God has for His Son, you have access to because you're a joint heir with Him. You have what He has. Hebrews 1, 2, He owns everything. He has as that is His heirship. Well, that said, understand then what the first perception of this verse is, is to say that you're heirs of God. That can mean that you're a joint heir with Jesus Christ. You have access to everything He's going to get. There's a second way to look at it, though. In verse 17, heirs of God can also mean that uh, as a child of God, God Himself is your inheritance. You say, isn't that a little, you know, isn't that a little fuzzy? Nope, because in the Old Testament, the, the Hebrews, or the, excuse me, the Levites, when they were given or asking about their particular lots for their inheritance, you may recall the story in Numbers chapter 18, a case in point, the Lord spake unto Aaron, and he said, Thou shalt have no inheritance in their land, neither shall thou have any part among them. I am thy part, and thine inheritance among the children of Israel. He's saying, look, you won't have any property. Uh, every time I think about that, I think of what the late Golda Meir of Israel said, Prime Minister of Israel. Uh, Golda Meir said she was a, a unique lady, to be sure. And she said at a meeting one time of the minds concerning the economics of Israel, she said Israel, or said Moses was not too smart. He picked the only land in the Middle East that has no oil under it. And you're right, there's no oil in Israel. It's the only plot of land that has no oil under it. The only one. Now, years ago, they thought there was two places that did. Sounded them, checked them, drilled them, didn't. And so Moldemeyer used to make a joke that Moses wasn't too smart. He picked a lot, a plot piece of ground, the only piece of ground in the Middle East that has no oil under it. Well, the fact of the matter is, in the case of the inheritance with the, heir, the Levites, when Aaron was up, God says to him, said, look, you're not going to have any of the land. So don't, don't get your mind focused on property and land and upkeep and buildings and all that. Don't worry about it. Here's the deal, Aaron. I'm going to be your inheritance. I am. I'm what you inherited. Now, I don't know how they reacted to that, but if they were smart, they would have reacted with great glee and joy and happiness because would you rather have the rich man's land or would you rather have the rich man? It just wouldn't didn't take a genius to figure that out. I'd rather have the man who has a control of everything than I would just a piece of land. And that's exactly what they offered. By the way, that was in the Old Testament. Somebody said, well, how would that figure in the New Testament? I'm glad you asked. It hits me, and it's interesting to me that we uh, interpret a passage of Scripture. Look at it, if you would. It's the one in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And look at verse number 13 and 14. Ephesians chapter 1, 13 and 14. Here's what Ephesians chapter 1, 13 and 14 say. They're stating the fact that the Holy Spirit, in this case, in whom ye have also trusted after that ye heard the word. He's talking about Jesus Christ in that case. In whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed. Now note the phrase, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of His glory. That phrase, the earnest of our inheritance, we often talk about that means that just means a down payment. It does mean that, but it means much more than that. Uh, we, we are too light on the interpretation when you just say it means down payment. The strict meaning of the word earnest carries the ideal of a deposit 
of the same nature of that which the ultimate will be paid out of. Meaning, if you go over here to King Title, which is across the street, and you go down there to buy property, and you go in there and you happen to pull 10 trillion uh, Coke can caps, and you say, I want to put this as the down payment on my property to these people who I'm buying it from, they're going to look at you like you're full of nails. You know, you're a little bit on the wire side. You're crazy. We want it paid in money. So what you need to do is pay the down payment in money. So whatever the ultimate has to be paid out, I want the I want a percentage of that up front. So whatever, if you're going to pay them in pigs, then you got to pay a percentage in pigs. If you're going to pay in cattle, you got to pay a percentage in cattle. If you're going to pay the whole thing off in bottle caps, then I want a percentage of bottle caps up front. Whatever the ultimate is paid out with, I want a percentage up front. That's what that word really means. It means whatever it is that we're going to be paying out completely, then it has to be a percentage of that down front. That's what the word earnest means technically. So what's he saying? The Holy Spirit is our earnest. That means the Holy Spirit who is God, the portion of that, that is the ultimates of God. We're getting the Holy Spirit now because later we get God himself. Now, what ways and means do we get God when we get to heaven? Don't ask me. I do know this. We don't become one. You know, we don't become one. We get one. And we get the only one, the God of the universe. And that's the whole idea, that the Holy Spirit's just the down payment, but He's the down payment of the same thing we're going to get. And what we're going to get is we're going to get God. I typically believe that Romans chapter 8 is really saying that uh, God is our inheritance. God is our inheritance. And let me tell you why I believe that. Not only from the context of these two phrases and words and so forth, but much of the Old Testament. For instance, I was reading Psalm 16 this week, and it says, The Lord is my portion. The Lord is my portion. In Hebrew, carries with it is, The Lord is my lot, that which has been assigned in an inheritance. The Lord is my portion. The Lord is my lot. The Lord is my part of the deal. The Lord is. Not the Lord's land, not the Lord's blessing, not the Lord's goods, but the Lord is. And I submit to you that one of the great fears I have as a pastor of the church is that we all too often come to be appreciative of the things God does, but not God. I mean, we really like God to bless us. In fact, we probably prayed that already. Lord, bless us. Lord, bless us. Lord, bless us. Lord, bless us. We like the things God does, but we somehow do not connect too well to God. And so when you tell some people God's going to be their inheritance, they say, say, what? What's that mean in dollars and cents? What's that mean in possessions? I don't know. What's that mean in tangible? I don't know. But for me, it's enough to know that God's my portion I just know I can be resting in that if he's my inheritance I know I don't have a thing to worry about I don't have to think about it worry about it be anxious over it if God is my inheritance if I'm an heir of God God's going to as it were going to be mine in totality when I get home then I don't have anything to worry about but I pray in our society and, and I hope it's not true of you that you're more caught up with the things that God provides than you are God Himself. Why would I say that? Several reasons. Let me ask you a simple question. Did you spend any time with Him alone this week? Just you and Him. Did you grab your Bible and get into a quiet place and open it and, and just open and read? And, and did you relish that time spent with Him? Did you come here this morning to see people or to worship God? 
the things you do that are spiritual, are they spiritual with the idea of what they what people may see you do in them, or are you doing it totally and absolutely for Him, and therefore it doesn't bother you if nobody knew you did it or didn't do it, and nobody it doesn't matter to you if nobody saw you doing it. You did it as unto the Lord. You see, so much of what we do, we do because somebody's watching who we know. Let me tell you something. If you know the Lord, He's always watching. Always watching. But I figure in our society, we're so tangibly oriented, you know. We need to touch it. We need to feel it. We need to have it seen. But I'm telling you that the just shall live by faith, not by sight. And I'm telling you that there's a sense in which God's people need to know God and not know all the things about what God gives, provides, and puts up. And I fear for us about that. I really do. Because some people think the ideal, and, and, and it's, I think, probably been encouraged by certain churches. People look to the church and say, well, you know, if I'm not being all I ought to be, it's probably because the church has not provided me an opportunity to do that. You'll forgive me, but that's just a bunch of southern hogwash. You see, it's a personal relationship between you and God. And just because the New Life Baptist Church may not have something going that really makes it easy for you to serve and honor the Lord does not excuse you from doing what God wants you to do. See, it doesn't, it's not our fault that you cannot, quote, serve God. He made it a one-to-one issue. God's saying to you, I want you to serve me. I want you to honor me. I want your life to count. And whether the New Life Baptist Church or the Walnut Grove Baptist Church or whatever church along the road doesn't provide some opportunity for you to do it because of time or our obligations otherwise or commitments you have otherwise and we just can't get our schedules together, that doesn't excuse us. Why? Because it's between me and God. God is my portion and God is my God. It's not some kind of supervisor. He's God and he expects me to carry out the things that he has given me the ability to do. And it's between me and him. It's not between you and us, the church. But it's important for you to develop and to, as it were, to nurture a relationship with God. With God. And my concern is we, if we don't spend any time alone with God then it tells me that there probably isn't really any relationship between us and God. So if I said to you this morning, everybody in the New Life Baptist Church, member or non-member, who has read the Word of God every day this week, would you please stand? Though I'm not asking, could you stand? Every day, no exceptions and no excuses. Don't, don't tell me I got busy and couldn't. Don't tell me, you know, we make time for what we make time for out of love. You love to eat? I bet you didn't miss a meal this week, unless you're on a diet. You love to do... Th- yeah, I'll guarantee you, if you loved it, you'll do it. If you don't love it, you'll do everything in the world to get away from doing it. And there's nobody in this room knows there's anything more challenging than to pray unless praying is a part of your relationship with God. I tell you what, if you come to that point in your life where coming to God in prayer, you can just unload your heart, tell Him everything you feel, and, and share your burdens and it's become a relationship between you and Him, then prayer is not as hard as some people try to make it. Now, if you try to make it a thing where you accumulate all this stuff and you got to go to God and, you know, get it out and work it over, and all, I could see how you could get laborious in that and rather bored. But if it's a personal relationship, there's a God in heaven, your inheritance, your portion, who's waiting to hear from you, and He is your heavenly Father, and He cares about what you're up to, and He cares about what you're walking through, and He wants to hear from you, and He's delighted when He can do something on your behalf because you believe He will and can. Let me tell you, I don't know of any better relationship in all the world. 
men and women in this room who don't have good relationships between them, spouses. I'll guarantee you the thing you'll do is you will not spend a lot of time together. Guaranteed. You'll do everything in your power to, in fact, spend it away. So why should we not apply the same rule to our relationship with God? If I'm not meeting God, then what's the problem? What's the problem here? Why am I not spending time with God? Why am I not sitting inside and quietly taking my Bible and lap and looking and reading and thinking? Because if God's Word is God speaking to me and prayer is my speaking to Him, then it's a two-way communication issue. And why am I not doing one or both? Why am I not doing it? And I say this to you, it's important for you to answer that question because honestly, I think it has greater ramification than you might first think. If I'm really born of the Spirit... There ought a sense in which I get alone with the Spirit of God and let Him speak to my heart through His Word and direct my steps. And my relationship with God ought to be growing deeper and stronger every single day. And so when somebody tells me that God is my inheritance, my portion, it ought not be a disappointment because I was wanting lands and possessions. It ought to be, that's great. That's great because I know Him. I've spent time with Him and He and I are in a good relationship. Every time I think about that, I think about this clipping that I had years ago, in fact I've shared it with you a long time ago, that there's in the um, the story about uh, this very wealthy man, when his household goods were auctioned off, the elderly lady who uh, used to take care of the son in the estate, the elderly lady dressed in a shabby garments and, and very disheveled look about her, she was the only one who bid on the dead man's son's picture. You remember the story I'm sure. And the man had left instructions, and he said, Look, when you come to the auction, and told the auctioneer, when you come to the auction, he had written in his will, whoever buys the son's picture gets everything else in the estate. So stop the auction. Whoever buys my son's picture, and it must be sold first, whoever buys the picture gets everything else. Every time I think about heirs of God, that's exactly the story I think about when this shabby lady raised her hand and made the bid for the son's picture. Absolutely nobody was interested in that son's picture. They didn't know him, they didn't care about him, and they didn't care anything about the people behind all these objects in the estate. Had no interest. But when this woman raised her hand, placed the bid, the auctioneer said, sold. The woman stands and starts down to the front to take a card that they'd given out for the auction. That thing back, or handed in actually with a name on it, the auctioneer stood at the podium and said, The auction is over. Everything in this state goes with the picture. That's like when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. You get everything that God has in the deal. So when you come to know Jesus Christ as Savior, God becomes your inheritance. So says Romans chapter 8, verse 17, Then if children, then heirs, heirs of God. And I say to you this morning, I don't know of any better position in all the world to be in and to be an heir of God. Someone who knows full well, rightly so, that everything that God has is mine. And that's why you can ask him anything. That's why God can say nothing is impossible. He's not only, uh, he's not only omniscient, he knows everything, and omnipresent, and goes everywhere, but he's omnipotent. He has all power. He can do whatever he needs to do at any given moment, and he has all the resources to back it up with. And I say this, it's important this morning that you and I sometimes, because we think of wills and we think of inheritances as, as a matter of future, you, you, you just have to be careful here. 
you have to be careful in the Christian life because we believers get caught up in the being tied too tightly to the present world. You remember Demas who worked so closely with Paul for so long and then Paul wrote those sad, sad and sorrowful words. He said, for Demas have forsaken me loving this present world. You see, if you're not careful in this world because you forget that you have the inheritance of God, you'll get caught up in this place and you will begin to love the world because the things of the world are immediate. They're touchable. They're physical. They're right here, right now. And it'll be easier to go do something with this tangible, tangible world than it will to be to get alone with God who you can't see and have not seen. You see, and that's why it's by faith and not by sight. That's why it's easier to live by, by sight. Oh, it's so much easier. It's hard to live by faith. It's hard to live by faith. But as long as you stay in God's Word, we know that our faith is increased and encouraged by the fact of reading after God and knowing that His Word is true and there is absolutely nothing we need to worry about of His commitments to us. He will fulfill every single one of them. I say this to you, only the believers who keep a heavenly perspective can be true spiritual service to the Lord. And the reason is very simple. They are freed from these earthly fears and desires and interests that so easily hinder our commitment to Christ and the church. If you're not careful, you'll let this world get between you and God. And you simply won't spend time with Him. You'll just get so accustomed to doing your daily thing that, that you'll forget it. That's why all through the New Testament you'll find verses like what Paul wrote to the Colossian believers. He said this in chapter 2 and verse number, excuse me, chapter 3 and verse 2. He said, set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead and your faith or life is hid with Christ in God. Set your affection on things above. My goodness, that runs counter to almost 95% of it, if not more. How many of us this week really set our minds and hearts to set our affections, our interests, and our desires on things above and not things around us? It's a tough call. It's a hard responsibility. But the scriptures say you must do it. If you're going to be any heavenly good, you're going to have to separate yourself from earthly beings because it's just so much encouragement to live by sight and not by faith. And I say to you that God's word concerning us being heirs of God, I believe, is to give us the assurances. Look, you can disconnect yourself from this world. I'm your inheritance. I'll provide your needs. I'll take care of your circumstances. Don't worry about it. I'll take care of you. You just trust me. By the way, there's another reason why you ought to trust God in, in regard to the things of this world and uh, why you ought to, as it were, turn your back on them. Uh, Peter writes it in Second Peter chapter 3. In chapter 3 of Second Peter, Peter wrote this in verse number 4. He says, And saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep... All things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of the Lord or word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. That, of course, talks about the flood. Whereby the world that being then was, being overflowed with water, perished. Verse 7. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of the ungodly men. And verse 8, verse number 8, But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Point to be taken. The, the agenda for this earth on which you've invested all of your life and where you've lived all of your days 
It is scheduled to be destroyed. And everything in it. Now you just forgive me, but it doesn't make a lot of sense to put all of our marbles into something that's going to be burnt up with fervent heat. It just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense for you to work all of your life and put everything you've got right back into this world. It just doesn't make any sense. It's all going to burn up. It's all going to go away. And so I say to you, it's not just because you're an heir of God and He's laid up these things for you someday to have and enjoy, but He's also say, don't waste your time on putting anything into this world because this world is going to melt with fervent heat. It's going to be destroyed by fire. So don't get caught up in this thing. And if you believe the one, there's no reason for you not to believe the other. And by the way, there's that reminder. New Testament says it over and again, that where your heart is, there where your or where your treasures are, there will your heart be also. Where your treasures are, where those things are that you really count as worthwhile, that's where your heart will be. And maybe that's why you don't think a lot about heaven. Because you don't have anything there. Maybe there's nothing in heaven to which you have any kind of affection. Maybe there's just nothing there. You, you just can't realize or think or perceive God and therefore you just can't relate to that. But you can relate to money in the bank, possessions, properties. That's something to relate to. That's physical. That's touchable. But it is also destructible. It's all going to go away. So God says, don't, don't waste yourself with this. Do what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter number 1 and verse number 1. 1 Peter 1 verse 1 excuse me, verse number 3 in chapter 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again, that is, regenerated us, unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance, an inheritance I call your attention to, incorruptible. In chapter number 3, he said there is a corruptible inheritance. You may have things on this earth that somebody's going to give you, but if they stay here, they're going to burn up. They'll be corruptible. But there is an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away. The good news is, in verse number 4, it's reserved in heaven for you. So my point is that there's not only the idea that we're heirs of God and we are a, a set up that God says there are things just waiting for us to enjoy in heaven. And part of that, and one big part of that is that God himself becomes our portion, our lot in the estate when it's read. But it's also to say that this earth is going to be burnt up and it's going to be absolutely all destroyed. Everything you leave here is going to be burnt up. So therefore, the Scriptures encourage us to lay up treasures in heaven. For moth cannot get through to eat up and rust cannot take care of a deteriorating or destroying. So he's saying don't waste your life on putting a bunch of stuff in this world. Put it up there. And let it go right alongside of the inheritance that God has for you in Himself. There's one other thing before we close this morning. Back to Romans chapter 8. Let me call your attention again to the verse. We only get half of it today. Verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. What's important about that is, and we'll get into the last part of the verse next week when we talk about suffering. But in the first part of this verse, there's something that you need to keep before you. And I believe it's a tremendously important point to make. And that is that uh, there are some things that God provides for us right here and now. We call them the blessings or the favors of God, and you can enjoy them. But someday we get the inheritance of God, and those will be things when we get to heaven we enjoy. The problem is this. 
So many people get the idea that because things, quote, tend to go wrong and things don't go right and problems seem to come, that they get all out of whack about them. You know, they get discouraged, you know. Um, even this morning, I've heard of a man who, who um, blames God because things in his family have all gone wrong and everything's going downhill and nothing's going right and, and he's upset with God and all he sees God doing is laying more and more and more on him and he's not making any headway and he blames God for all of his demise. Let me tell you something. You need to understand the biblical perspective about life. And this is one of the things that this verse of Scripture draws my attention to. Two or three things, and we'll close. Listen. The first one is this. You remember Abel in the Old Testament. He had a brother. And his name was Cain. God spoke to both the brothers, and in essence, by just instructions that I'm sure came from their parents, too, told them that they were supposed to bring sacrifices to God, offerings. They brought those offerings to God. You know the story. In the case with Cain, he brought those things of the fur earth, the, you know, the garden stuff, the vegetables, etc., and it was that Abel brought along those things which were ordained of God the sacrifices, a blood offering. And so as it came to be, in fact, what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 4, it declares that Abel obtained witness that he was righteous, he was right with God. But what's interesting is that Abel died at the hands of his brother and as far as we know, had no earthly inheritance. He died a, a pauper. He died with someone. Died as someone who had absolutely no reference to an estate of anything. He didn't have anything. No reference made to it. There's a second story as I read this week. There's the case with Noah. The Bible says that he obeyed God. He built an ark even when it hadn't rained. He builds this ark out, as it were, in a, in a dry desert type setting, and and all these people, no doubt, mocked him from the get go and said, "Are you stupid? Building a boat? It has never rained, and you say it's going to rain? You're crazy." He builds it. The Bible says he saved his family, and in the process, he condemned the world. What it means is he became heir of righteousness because of his obedience, because of his faith. But here's the catch: in the flood, he lost everything except his family. Lost everything. He didn't even have a chair to sit in that we know anything about. I mean, this guy lost it all except his family and all these animals of which he had no allegiance. He had no earthly inheritance. He had no earthly possessions to fall back on. But this man is described in the hall of faith as Abel is. Then there's a third one in the case of uh, Moses. In fact, it might be good for you to look at this in the book of Hebrews chapter 11. In chapter 11, verse number 24, to be exact, the Bible says, By faith Moses, when he was come of years, or two years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now, you imagine what an inheritance that would have been. Can you comprehend all the possessions that Moses would have had access to and wouldn't one day been turned over to him as the son of Pharaoh's daughter? Can your mind even perceive of such? Verse number 25 says, Choosing, rather, to suffer affliction choosing rather to suffer affliction choosing rather we have a comparison we have a contrast choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season verse 26 esteeming esteeming counting it a high thing the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt let me park a moment you read that esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures 
in Egypt. Now, I don't have to tell you, but uh, world history would, that Egypt was one of the richest countries in all the world early on when Moses was around. I mean, they had gold. Gold was so plentiful in some references of history that it lay upon the ground like clods of dirt. It was there for the picking, as they say. And Egypt picked it. And Egypt disposed of it. They put it away. They melted it down. They put it in blocks. They put it in images. They had hordes of it. And here's a guy who stands up and in, in, in very simple language, verse 26, he esteemed the reproach of Christ. Reproach is a bad thing. It's that mockery. It's that persecution, that verbiage kind of thing that makes it hard to take a stand for what's right. He took this reproach and he esteemed this reproach of Christ and he counted it as greater riches than the treasures that were in Egypt. Let me ask you a question. Have you gotten there? Have you gotten to a point in your Christian life where you esteem being reproached for your testimony and your relationship to Jesus Christ? That it's more important to you to be reproached in your standing for Christ than it would be if someone gave you a million dollars? And a million dollars wouldn't even begin to account for all the gold in Egypt, the treasures there, but just say a million dollars. It amazes me how deep the faith is. You'll forgive me, but some of our Christianity seems like sort of a basement bargain kind of thing, you know? Who in this room would stand up to be reproached for Christ? Who would dare choosing to suffer afflictions rather than to stand with God's people? Here's a guy who would rather accept, endure afflictions with God's people for God and for His glory than he would to go over here and have an easy street with the pagans. Would you do it? Would you quit your job on a biblical principle rather than to go along with it and have it made easy? Your money would come in. You'd have no concerns as far as economics, but you'd be standing on wrong principle. Would you do it? Moses did it. Moses turned his back on all the inheritance that he would have with Pharaoh's daughter. He accepted the fact that he'd rather suffer affliction with God's people than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. And he also esteemed the reproach that he would gain from a relationship he had with Christ of greater riches than if someone pulled out all the bullions of gold and handed it to him and said, this is all yours because you've turned your back on Christ. Let me tell you something. Our Christianity in the year 2005 compared to the Christianity of man like Moses is off the pale, you know. We just, we, we like a touchy-feely kind of thing, you know. And there's not anything touchy-feely about this. This is hard fought for conviction of heart and soul. There's a God in heaven. He is my inheritance. Someday I'm going to die. And everything I can, I'm going to send up ahead of me so that when I get there, he'll look me square in the face and say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things, insignificant, corruptible things down there on that earth that I'm going to burn up. And I want you to say that because you're faithful over those few things, I'm going to make you rule over a lot of things. Let me tell you something this morning. If there's anything that need be done, it ought be that God's people would come to a point to understand that knowing God is more important than just quote what you can get out of Him. It's who He is. It's who He is. It's like going down to the bank and drawing out some account and then on the other side having option of owning the bank itself. That's exactly what it is. And we're content to just make deposits and withdrawals. And God is saying, no, I'd like for you to establish a relationship with me personally, closer.
You say, Pastor, I've been saved. I know I'm going to heaven. It's more than just going to heaven. It's more than just going to heaven. And it's more than just coming to church. It's a relationship with God Almighty and understanding the ramification as much as humanly as possible to understand the ramification of that close relationship. It makes all the difference in the world. And I say to you, the passage goes even further in chapter 11. In verse number 39, it says, Hebrews 11, 39, and these all, he's talking about all these people in the hall of faith in Roman, or Hebrews 11. He says, these all, having obtained a good report through faith, that is, they were commended, their lives were commended because they lived by faith, received not the promise. There were promises made to these people in Hebrews chapter 11 that they never enjoyed. God made some promises that they never got to. They didn't live to see the day. They didn't live to enjoy the moment. Verse number 40, God having provided some better things for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. The point I make in the context is these all received not the promise, but the fact of the matter is that they have now. These folks have received everything that God promised, but not while they were here. In some cases, if you go back up through there and read all the things that happened to these poor people, they were sawn asunder, they were, they were abused, they were persecuted, they suffered, they went through the cruel mockings, imprisonments, scourgings, etc., etc., all of that stuff. And they didn't get what they thought they were going to get. They, did, they believed God. Their faith did not waver. They weren't in the least concerned about what they were going through in the sense that they feared God somehow had abandoned the throne. They never thought that. So why is it somehow someday in some ways we do? Why do we have a professing Christian, as I alluded to moments ago, who thinks he's mad at God because every day is not a super-duper day? I'll tell you, because we don't understand the biblical mindset of how we're to have a perspective about this earth and eternal things. And we don't have the understanding that God is our inheritance and it does not matter what you go through. You may be an Abel and die at the hands of a family member. You may be a Noah and you may lose everything in the world by flood. Or you may be a Moses and it may be that you will have to suffer and go along with God's people and you could have been an heir to a palace of a Pharaoh. Whatever the case is, you must understand that there's something bigger, greater, and more wonderful than the moment. And that is understanding your relationship to the Heavenly Father. When you get a hang on that... These other things seem so insignificant, irrelevant, and who could care less about them kind of thing. And I say this to you this morning. God will, His will, will never be read because He dies, but it will be read because we do. When we get to heaven and we enjoy so many of these things that are listed as an inheritance, even though now we enjoy favor and blessing and things, when we get there we enjoy a full inheritance which will be centered in God Himself. I leave you with these three points. Number one, being in God's will is not by any action on your part or mine, but it is rather by placing your faith in what God has said about His Son. And that's to say that uh, as John chapter 1 and verse 12, but as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. And He went on to say that this is not by the will of the flesh nor by the will of man, but this happens by the will of God. So the first thing is, this is not something that I instigated if I come to faith in Christ and are born into God's family as a child and, are, and am given a sonship, an adopted position where I'm in full status. I have full rights to the inheritance. 
It's nothing I did. It's what he did for me. There's a second thing to be noted. Though year after year in American courts, they, are, they wage war, and I mean really wicked war, claimants taking part in this state that had no right to it. Claimants file some kind of complaint against the will, and then they have to go through that and judge rules, etc. That'll never happen with God. He knows everybody who is in the will. He'll turn to some and say, Depart from me because I never knew you, Matthew 7. He said, Wait a minute. Well, well, here's all the good things we did. And he's going to say, in effect, See, you got caught up in what you felt and what you was that feely fuzzy thing. And what you didn't understand, it's not based on feely fuzzy, it's based on biblical relationship. It's based on the knowledge of the Scripture and an ongoing dynamic relationship. It's not based on some kind of feel-good thing on Sunday morning. It is a constant, continuous, perpetual relationship with me. You're born into my family. And he said, for all of you depart from me, I never knew you. Never knew you. Note. It wasn't I knew you and you've gotten away from me now, I don't know you. It was I never knew you. You never were in relationship to me as my sons and daughters. Depart from me. There's a third thing you should know. Nothing can get you out of God's will once you are legitimately in it. Romans chapter 8 will make that point, and we'll make it in weeks to come, but it simply is that part of the text of Romans 8 that says, like in verse number 34, Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, or peril, or sword? Point made is, no, none of these things can separate us. None of these things can get us out of the Father's will. So I say to you this morning, the question that is on the table is really two. Question one, it goes back to the very beginning of Romans chapter 8 and verse number 17. It is the matter of if children. And again, I repeat, it's not saying if in the sense of doubt, but in my question, it is a doubt. If you're a child of God, are you? Has there been a time in your life where you bowed your head and your heart under the realization and a conviction that you were a sinner? And at that point in time, you realize that God sent his son to die on the cross because you are a sinner. Not they are, I am. I am a sinner. I was born a sinner and I will die a sinner unless I repent and believe on Christ. Has there ever been a time when you came face to face with your own sinfulness and acknowledged it before God? Lord, I'm a sinner. I need to be saved. Forgive me for Christ's sake. Has there ever been a time when you were born into God's family? Not when you cry crocodile tears. Not when you got baptized. Not when you walked an aisle and joined a church. And not when you just really felt more religious. None of that counts. What counts on in getting into a will is blood and birth. Blood and birth. The Lord Jesus Christ's blood was shed on the cross for your sin. If you trust His blood shed, His death on the cross in your behalf, and you acknowledge that to Him, then you are born into God's family. You are written into God's will. Simple and sweet. Number two. The second thing that's important is for God's people to understand that the relationship with God, it ought to be that God is enough for us. Not all the what God does for us, 
even though that's wonderful and good and he wants you to enjoy what he does for you. He's not jealous of his provisions. That's not the point. The point is, just don't get so caught up in what he does for you that you have no relationship with him. Enjoy him. You see, if I always went to the table for my wife and said to her, I'll tell you what, you're the best cook in the world. And I believe she is. And uh, I'd say to her every time, I'll tell you what, just, you're just the greatest cook. Best cook in the world. There's just none better. Just want to thank you for that. And I eat my supper and then I leave and I'm not come back till the next meal. I say, oh, boy, I tell you, you're just the best cook going. Just nobody better. You're the very best cook in all the world. Thank you very much. But i got to run. And I left. And then I come back to the third meal and do the same exact thing. You think after a while she'd get the idea the only reason I like her is because she can cook? I would. I'd get the idea if I were in her shoes. You do you get the idea that sometimes that's the way we treat God. We come to Him with whatever the need is, and we talk about all those things that we need, and we share them with Him, and we plead with Him to provide them, and He often does. Then there's a problem with that. God is not a bellhop. God is not a gopher. Go for this, and go for that, and bring me this, and bring me that. God wants a father-son, father-daughter relationship. And He wants that relationship to be something that you look forward to on a day-to-day, hour-to-hour, moment-by-moment basis. And that's what makes airship so exciting. What would be interest of the New Life Baptist Church to be named in an estate, to be written into a will of people we have no idea of knowing, have no relationship to whatsoever? You think there's any joy, any thrill about knowing you know, what's in the will? I really could care less because I'm not just interested in people's money. I'm interested in people. And somehow we didn't have any clue about these folks. And in the end, it didn't matter because there wasn't anything left. But I say to you this morning, it's important for you to know that you know Christ. It's important that you know that you know Christ. And it is a matter that if you don't know Him, it's important that you face that here this morning. That you not put it off and say, well, I'll do it another time. I feel in my heart that I don't know Christ, but I just don't feel too comfortable about doing it right now. Let me tell you something. The devil will make dead sure that you won't feel any more comfortable than you do right now. You see, the devil delights in people being held in darkness. The God of this world blinds the minds of those that would believe. If they would believe, believe me, he's going to be trying his best to keep you blind to the truth. And he'll do a good job of it. He seems to be an expert at it. Because this morning, while you and I are marching to Zion, there are lots of folks who are marching to hell. They do not know Christ. They're not in God's will. They have nothing at stake in His inheritance. But if you know Him, you do. Rejoice in it. Our Father, we thank You for the Scriptures and thank You for the relationship that You've made possible for us to have with Yourself. We know that it is not of our own merit. We are very quick to acknowledge that. And we do know that it is only on the basis of what You have done. This morning, therefore, we come to you asking for your help in bringing this to light in the minds and hearts of people in this auditorium. I pray that the Christians here this morning would understand that we need to have a relationship with you that is not because of all the things you do for us, but it's because of who you are. And that we've developed and we have nurtured a relationship with you that you've instigated, and it's with you personally. And because of that, we delight in coming into your presence. We delight in coming to church on Sunday. Sunday night and Wednesday night. We delight in a daily time of devotion, getting alone with you and reading the Word and thinking upon the Scriptures that you've communicated to us and revealed yourself in. We do thank you today, Father, for all the people in this room who've come to faith in Christ. We rejoice in that. And don't let us think for a second that that's such an easy thing. 
remind us that the devil himself fights so hard against anyone really seeing the truth and believing it and acting upon it. And if we've come to faith in Christ, it is the grace of God that got us here. Remind us of that often. But remind us also that even among those we witness to and share the gospel with, and even though they may shun it for the time, it may be that in their heart of hearts they are coming to the truth, the reality of it, and it may just take time. Help us not to be offended by their 